Last week we started a new series called The Cross, and, and uh, as I said, it's going to actually take a couple of weeks before we actually get to the cross, but last week we, we talked about God's glory. You remember what we talked about and, and the awesomeness of God, how, how, how we talked about His riches and His wisdom and His knowledge that's beyond our comprehension, and, and then we talked about, uh, uh, about uh, uh, what happens that when... We actually close the service by talking about what happens when, uh, when all that we have begin. Uh, let me back up a little bit. Everything that we are and everything that we've been given, everything that we that 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 He has made us, He He created all things by all things were created by Him and for Him and to Him. We talked about that and 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 that it's all about the glory of God. That the that this book, this Bible, is about Him. It's not about us, it's about Him, it's about His glory. And, and then we closed up by asking the question, what happens when we as created beings begin to steal the glory of God and, and, and instead of giving the glory to Him? And then we had to kind of end. So this morning we're going to uh, begin to go on in, the, in this series. We're going to be talking about God's first response to us as glory thieves because that's what we do as human beings, our natural, uh, natural uh, tendency within us is to, to make everything about us. Have you ever known people like that? Uh, listen, you have because you're one of them. That's our natural tendency. You don't believe me. If you don't believe that women, that, uh, that, not women, <laughs> don't, uh, that's not what I was going to say. <laughs> women and men. Let me put this. I almost got myself in really big trouble. Some of you would not have heard a single word I said the rest of the day. If you don't believe that we are naturally selfish, uh, then I, I just challenge you, you take care of a six-week-old baby uh, for, for about a month. Because that baby does not care about your feelings. Can I get an amen? amen. That baby does not care if you get a good night's sleep. Can I get an Amen. amen. That baby does not care if you're tired. If that baby wants something to eat, that baby wants something to eat. You know what I'm talking about. For that child, the world revolves around them and their desires. That's our natural human inclination. That's where we sit naturally. Now we learn uh, by our parents teach us, you know, these things. But we always have that natural inclination within us to make life about us. Some people... You know, learn to be able to deal with it a little better than others. But this morning, we're going to talk about God's first response because He has two responses, and we're going to talk about the first response. So, if you have your Bible, grab it. We're going to start off in Matthew three. We have a lot to cover, and and, and honestly, this is a little bit of a heavy uh, subject this morning. But we're going to just dive in and go from there and see what the Lord wants to do. But while you're turning to Matthew three, I want to read to you another verse from Romans, Romans eleven twenty-two says this, note then the kindness and the severity of God. Severity toward those who have fallen, but God's kindness to you, provided you continue in His kindness. Otherwise, you too will be cut off. Now Romans eleven twenty two starts off by saying, note then the kindness 
and severity of God. Now, I think the majority of us can grasp the kindness of God. It's taught from pulpits every weekend as it should be. Things like grace and love and forgiveness and healing and mercy, they're all facets of the kindness of God. And they should be taught and they should be received in our lives. They are phenomenal themes that run throughout the entire Bible. However, when Paul wrote this, he didn't just say, uh, note then the kindness of God. He added something else. He said, he, he spoke not only of the kindness of God, but he also spoke of the severity of God. And, and now when you get on the severity of God, things get really, really, really goofy out there. You know, and we live in a day where, where the, uh, the Bible colleges, the message out there from Bible college all the way through seminary, the, the message that pastors get is church growth. From books to church classes to seminars to conferences, the church is absolutely consumed with growing at all costs. Now listen, I believe God wants the church to grow. Uh, don't misunderstand me at all. But, uh, but, but the problem is, it, 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 the attitude has come in, we have got to grow and forget about whether the members of our church have any, any real depth or any real substance. Let's just be able to say, I've got a church of so many thousand, blah, blah, blah. Now, when the church becomes consumed by church growth, then what happens is the natural tendency is to dismiss the severity of God. But let me, I want to tell you this. The reality is if a man or a woman who teaches the scriptures is unafraid to unpack for you the severity of God, then they have betrayed you and it's very possible that they love their ego more than they love you. Here's what I mean. In the same way, it's not loving or kind to neglect teaching your children the dangers of playing in the street. You know, that's a loving thing to tell them there are consequences and there's danger there if you play in the streets. And it's not loving to say, listen, I want you to feel good about being in this family. And so since I want you to feel good about it, you just do whatever you want and we just won't worry about it. You would say that parent was a horrible parent. And in the same way, those who teach God's words but fail to warn men and women about the severity of God, they do not really love the people to whom they speak. And when you couple that with a lot of modern theology that just sort of has Jesus floating around, you know, never angry to anybody and and just saying to everybody, just do whatever you want because I'm just love. And you combine that kind of idea with that, then, then you, you've got the perfect storm for creating people who attend church who have no awe and no respect and no worship for the God of the universe. So that's the culture in which we live. And so we're going to look at two things. One of them we're going to look at today. The next one we're going to look at at the beginning in the next message in our series. But the question that we need to wrestle with is this. What is the right and just response of God towards the belittlement of his name in the universe? Let me say it again. What is the right and just response of God towards the belittlement of his name in the universe? Now, if you've got to Matthew 3, we'll start uh, uh, with, with John the Baptist there. John the Baptist is going to unpack this for us. So look at uh, verse 11 of chapter 3 of Matthew. He says, I baptize you with water for repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. Now, who is he talking about there? 
Very good. That's right. Jesus. Remember, first rule when a question is asked in the church, make your first guess Jesus. It doesn't matter if you know. That's just a good guess, right? So he's talking about Jesus. Jesus is the one that's going to do that. Now, remember, last week we talked about the, the first century society and Jewish society being heavily agricultural. And you're going to see that once again uh, show up in verse 12. But here is where we begin to get into God's first response to those who belittle his name, who, those who steal his glory. Matthew 3, verse 12. His winnowing, winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. So the scripture says, say, scripture says that, that Jesus came to gather the wheat into the barn. That's the place where, in that culture, that's where you would keep the things that, you, that are valuable to you. For the farmer, that is, that is his life wrapped up in there. That is his fortune. But then the chaff would be burned with unquenchable fire. God's first response to the belittlement of his name is described by the Greek word Gehenna, which we would translate as hell. Gehenna is used by Jesus 12 times in the four Gospels. The interesting thing about the word Gehenna is it is a reference to a ravine on the south side of Jerusalem where about 100 years before Jesus was born, there was this series of bizarre murders that took place. And so the Jews, because of the blood that was spilt there, they began to believe that the land was cursed. And so over time, nobody wanted to build anything there. Nobody wanted to buy it. So it basically became a dumping ground for Jerusalem, for all their trash and all their garbage and all the junk that they had. And when the pile of rubbish got too big, they, then they would set it on fire. So Gehenna, to the Jewish people hearing this, they were, it was a place of neglect, it was a place of destruction, it was a place that was always smoldering. It was either on fire or had just uh, been, been kind of burned out and, and it was still smoking and smoldering in that place. And it was constantly in that state. And so Jesus, in this reference, Jesus makes, he, he uses the word Gehenna and he's telling to, the, to, to them, He's saying, listen, the chaff is going to be thrown in this place of Gehenna where, where it's just constantly burning and smoldering and smoky. It's going to be a terrible thing. And he says, that's what I'm talking about. So here's what I want to do. I want us to walk through and I want us to learn a couple of things about hell. And I know you woke up this morning thinking, you know what I hope he talks about today? I hope he preaches about hell. You know, so I'm here to meet your needs. So here we go. And, and, and then at, at the end, we're going to talk about that. But then I want to talk about two responses that people can have towards the idea of hell. And then I want us to get into, and this will sound strange, the insufficiency of this response. Okay? So that's our morning. So flip over to Matthew 18. We'll pick it up in verse 8. We want to talk just a little bit, very, very briefly. We don't have time to go into detail I want to talk a little bit about what the Bible says about hell. Matthew 18, beginning in verse 8. And if your hand or your foot causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. However, I do say, I, will, I do recommend counseling first before you, before you go to that extreme. He says, it is better for you, listen to this, it is better for you to enter life crippled or lame than with two hands or two feet to be thrown into the eternal fire. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life with one eye than, than with two eyes to be thrown into the hell of fire. 
So here's what we know about hell right out of the gate. He's saying, we got to bring this into real life. He's saying, it is better for me to never ever be able to hold my children. It's better for me to never be able to run my fingers through my wife's hair. It's better for me not to be able to brush my teeth on my own. It's better for me to never be able to drive a car. You fill in the blank with anything that that you do that you have to use your hands for. It's better for me to never be able to do any of the things I need my hands to do than it is for me to, 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 to be able to do those things and find myself outside the kingdom of God and cast into hell. He goes on and says, it's better for me to never even see a sunset, to never uh, for me. It's better for me to never see the sunrise. It's better for me to never be able to look up and see the stars in the sky. It's better for me to never be able to even see my daughters. It's better for me to not be able to see my daughters in their wedding dresses one day. It's better for me to never see all of the wonders and and beauties of God's creation than to see those things and end up outside the kingdom of God and in hell. That's a horrible, horrible thought, all of those things. But he says all of those things are better. How horrible hell must be. How horrible it must be. Let's keep going. Matthew 25. We'll start in verse 41. Now, Matthew 25 is where it really starts to tie God's uh, response of hell uh, back into last week and the things that we said last week about the name of God and the glory of God being central in the universe. So here's what he says. Matthew 25, verse 41. Then he will say to those on the left, depart from me, you cursed into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. That's an interesting bit of information there. I don't have time to get into For I was hungry and you gave me no food. I was thirsty and you gave me no drink. I was a stranger and you did not welcome me. Naked and you did not clothe me. Sick and in prison and you did not visit me. Then they will also, they also will answer saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or naked or sick or in prison and did not minister to you? Then he will answer to them saying, truly, I say to you, as you did not do it to the, uh, to the least of these, you did not do it to me. And these will go away into eternal punishment but the righteous into eternal life. So this ties back into what we talked about last week, uh, uh, the fact that all that you are and all that you possess was given to you by God for the glory of God, not for your pleasure, not just to, so, so you can have stuff, but it was given to you uh, by God uh, uh, so that you can use it for His glory. And when you take those things and treat them as if they were earned by you for you, then you have belittled the name of God who gave you those things for his purpose. So the weight of this text is not you should feed the poor. That's not the whole point of this text. The weight of this text is that all that you have has been given to you by God and it's intended to be a blessing and it's intended to reflect the glory and the love and the compassion of God in your life to the world around you and it's never never intended to terminate on yourself alone. And so you can see that the response to the belittlement of God and his gifts for the glory of his name, he said, that's eternal fire. We'll introduce a couple more. Luke chapter 12, starting in verse 4. I tell you, my friends, do not fear those who kill the body, but, and after that have nothing more that they can do. But I will warn you whom to fear. Fear him who, after he has killed, has, killed, has authority to cast you into hell. 
Yes, I tell you, fear him. Now, this is a really, really interesting text. Because this is God saying, seriously? You're afraid of what people can do to you rather than what I can do to you? You're more afraid of what people might, how people might perceive you than how I perceive you? He's saying, are you serious? He said, listen, the most people can do is kill you. But he says, God has the power to send you to eternal punishment. This is, this is the gospel's way of saying, like, saying, let me put it like this. Are you seriously afraid of a kitten and not afraid of a lion? I mean, if somebody brings a kitten into the room and you scream and climb a tree, which is a bad move, by the way, because kittens can climb trees, you know, but, but, but you scream and run away from the kitten, but then there's a lion in the living room and you walk up and smack the lion across the face. Are you serious? Don't you see something is off there? God's saying, you, you spent a lot of time being afraid of what other people think and, and what they might do to you. But in the end, he said, if you don't pay attention, I'm scarier than all of those things. Let's do, let's do one more because I think we're getting a, a, a pretty good picture here. Let's go over to Luke 16. It's a story that Jesus told, but there's something in the story that, that, that's pretty weighty. We'll, pick, we'll get, pick it up in verse 19. There was a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen and who feasted sumptuously every day. And at his gate was laid a poor man named Lazarus, covered with sores, who desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, even the dogs came and licked his sores. The poor man died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried, and, and in Hades, being in torment, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side. And he called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and, and cool my tongue, for I'm in anguish in this flame. But Abraham said, Child, remember that you in your lifetime received your good things and Lazarus in like manner bad things, but now he is comforted here and you are in anguish. And besides all this, listen to this, between us and you a great chasm has been fixed in order that those who would pass from here to you may not be able and none may cross from there to us. So there's this uncrossable chasm that excludes the presence of God from the reality of hell. Now let me tell you why this is such a big deal. The Bible tells us that every good and perfect gift, according to the scripture, is a gift from God Almighty, right? James says that. That means, that means that everything that brings comfort, everything that brings joy, everything that brings pleasure, everything that brings peace, all of these things are gifts from the Father of lights. So hell, when all is said and done, hell is ultimately the absence of the presence of God. All right? Therefore, hell is the absence of anything that we can think of that's good or right or comforting or brings joy or brings peace. And you can keep going down the line. It's a pretty terrifying place. We, we could go on here. We really could. Jesus says it's a place of gnashing of teeth. The torment is so severe that they're, they're just gnashing their teeth. He says it's a place where, where the, the fire does not go out, but the worm does not die. How many of you have ever seen a worm on a hot sidewalk? It doesn't last very long, does it? But he says, listen, this is a place where the flame's going to be there, but it's not going to kill you. Probably the most, most ruthless description is in Revelation 14, 11. It says this. 
and the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever, and they have no rest day or night. It doesn't get any more horrifying than that. So that's the idea in in a nutshell of hell. That's, That's God. He said, listen, my response to this act of rebellion against me, this act of of using everything I give you for yourself and forgetting me and forgetting my glory, my response, my first response is, there's hell. So what's the response of people to the idea of hell? Now, uh, for most people, the most popular response today is something like this. Let Let me ask you if you've heard something like this. A loving God would not create a place like hell. You ever heard somebody say something like that? How can a loving God create and fill a place like hell? That's just not fair. That's not right. The punishment does not fit the crime. I mean, so I steal a biscuit or I tell a a little white lie to my boss, you know, and and I get eternal torment. Am I I close? Isn't that the, the kind of the argument that's put out there? And people want to completely disregard disregard the scriptures and and completely disregard the teachings of Jesus. And and many people have moved into this absurd postmodern euphoria that says God wouldn't do something like that. And so I say, what are you basing that belief on? I just know. I just know. It's not his character. Well, when you do that, let me show you what you're doing. If Listen, just follow me here. If hell exists because of the belittlement of God's name, our response to hell cannot, for our own safety, be the further belittlement of God's name. Here's what I mean. When you embrace that idea, when we embrace the idea that we're, we're saying that, 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 that God would not create a place like hell, what we're saying is that the name and the renown and the glory of Christ are not that big of a deal. We're saying it's not that big of a deal. We're saying that hell for eternity is the wrong punishment for our belittlement of the glory of God. So in essence, we say the punishment does not fit the crime because the crime is not that big of a deal. See, when you say that, when you say that that God would not create a place of hell, it shows that you do not understand the depth of of the majesty of our God. So what happens is we, if we say that, we say the punishment doesn't fit the crime because the crime isn't that big of a deal. Now we have just run full circle. Oh, he wouldn't do such a thing. Well, what about over and over again when he says he does? Well, listen, they say, I know Jesus. I know him right here. I know him in my heart. He would not do that. Why? Because he's loving, but he's not just. No, he, he is just. But then how can he allow the belittlement of his name by something that he created? The response is usually, huh? Remember last week we read the verse, who has known the mind of the Lord? Who has been his counselor? So what we're doing, we're saying, God, you you can't do hell. You're wrong to do that. That's that's, that punishment doesn't, is, doesn't match the crime here because we don't understand how horrible it is, the sin of belittling the name of God. 
And this is such an odd place to land on the doctrine of hell that all of a sudden we're like, he wouldn't do that because he's loving. And we're not basing that on anything revealed to me in scripture, but it's just right here in my heart. But I know this, the scripture says that right here in my heart, there is a way that seems right to man, but the end kills you. So that's the normal, the, the, the most common response to hell. What's the correct response to the doctrine of hell? I think the correct response is to, to realize if that is the punishment, if that's the correct punishment, then how big and how mighty and how infinite and how glorious God must be. That hell is the just response for the belittle of his name. Actually, John Piper once wrote this. He said, the horrors of hell are an echo of the infinite worth of God. Okay, now, God, thank God he doesn't stop there because in the end, there is a second response. Although God's first response of hell is right and it is just, his first response is insufficient. You say, what do you mean that's insufficient? Well, let's go back to what we talked about last week. Everything was created for the glory and praise of His grace and of His name. And, and here's the thing. I want you to understand. This is why hell is an insufficient response. And, and God knew it was insufficient. That's why He had a second response. Because if it was the, if it was the uh, sufficient response, God would have just stopped right there. But everything, as we said, everything was created for His praise. Everything was created for His glory. And here's what I know. Nobody praises God for justice. I don't. I mean, have you ever watched court TV or, you know, some show on TV or something where, you know, the judge slams down the gavel and says, I sentence you to die by lethal injection. And then the, the, the criminal says, yeah, I love you, judge. You know, I love you. I'm writing a song for you right now. Unto the judge eternal. You know, they didn't know this. There's no, there's no praise for justice. You, you don't see that because a guilty person does not want justice. They want mercy, right? So hell is insufficient in that it's not going to create worshipers. And this is where we get into the, how the doctrine of hell has been so abused and so misused by men in the name of God. The reality is, and this, listen, I want you to hear me on this. You cannot scare anyone into heaven. You can't. Heaven is not a place for those who are afraid of hell. Heaven is a place for those who love God. And you can scare people into coming to church you can scare people into trying to be good. You can scare people into giving money. You can spare pe scare people into, into trying to live a morally good life. But you cannot scare people into loving God. You can't scare people into love at all. I mean, I think about this. Uh, say there's a couple... And there's an abusive man and he wants this woman to love him. If he, if he corners her and traps her and beats her down and says, you will love me. She may eventually say, I love you because she, doesn't want the, she wants the beatings to stop. But he cannot scare her into loving him. Isn't that right? And we cannot scare people into loving God. Now, it doesn't mean that we don't talk about hell. Absolutely we do. We're, talk, we're doing it today. We, we talk about hell, but, but we talk about hell because then hell 
helps us understand the greatness of His mercy. See, because if you don't understand the depth of our sin against God, and you don't understand the just and the rightness of, of, the, of the response of hell, then we'll never fully grasp and understand how great His mercy and grace really is toward us. See, the second response we see it in Romans eleven thirty two, 32. For God has consigned all to disobedience that he ha may have, listen to this, that he may have mercy on all. Now listen, if we understand that God is going to be completely, uh, uh, completely consistent with himself, we now have a problem. Because how can God be just and merciful? How can he do that? If you belittled his name, if you've mocked him, if you thought your way is better than his ways, if you slap the face of the lion, how in the world is the lion not going to kill you? How can God show mercy and still remain just? See, because we would not say that a judge who let off a murderer for no other reason than he wanted to give mercy, we would not say he was serving the cause of justice, right? Anybody here? Okay, let me, let me just bring this, let me hit this point a little, little stronger here. If, if someone murdered someone that you loved and you went before a judge and that person was caught red-handed, they, they admit that they're guilty, they're standing before the judge and it's time to pass the sentence on that person who committed that crime. If that judge looked at that person and said, listen, I just really, really want to show you mercy so I commute all the sins, you're free to go. You would be outraged, wouldn't you? Because you cannot just on a whim give mercy and still claim to be offering justice. So here's the problem. This is the problem that we have as we look at this. How can God show mercy and still remain just? There is no justice. There is no justice in God just choosing to forgive you or me on a whim. There is grace there. There is mercy there. But there is no justice. And God is perfectly just. And so if he's going to be consistent with himself, he cannot just on a whim say, well, I'm going to, I'm going to forgive because I want to. Because that would be violating part of his character. So, so this mercy, this idea of mercy, who does he show that mercy on? It says that he have, may have mercy on all. Right now, at this very moment, God showers mercy on every person on this earth. Now, there are some problems with that, though. How does he show mercy on everyone when we know that not everyone is being saved? We'll flip it over, over to Romans 9. We'll pick it up in verse 22 and I'll explain how he shows mercy to all. You'll see, you'll see this. You'll see how he showed you mercy before you were ever even saved. It says, what if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath, those are sinners, prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, that's those who are saved, which he has prepared beforehand for glory. 
Now, I'm going to illustrate it like this. I don't know, most of you probably haven't heard of it. Maybe you've heard of something that was called the Blasphemy Project. And it was something on YouTube. the, The Blasphemy Project was something started by a group of atheists and they targeted 15 to 30 year old people and they encouraged people to, to let go of the chains of, re, of religion by blaspheming the Holy Spirit on YouTube, by recording themselves and uploading it to YouTube and ending it with, I've blasphemed the Holy Spirit and I am not afraid. And you know what? By the thousands, young men and women went on YouTube and they said horrible things. They said things like Jesus was a child molester and on and on you can go. They said horrific things about God and about Jesus and about the Holy Spirit and they ended it all with, I've blasphemed the Holy Spirit and I am not afraid. Now I know that's, that's horrifying to us and we can't even imagine that, but I, here's what I want you to see. Since they made that video, I am, I am positive that many of those very same people have eaten some really good food. I'm sure that those people might have even, you know, they might have had a a ribeye that was cooked medium rare, and and I propose that it just doesn't get much better than that. I'll bet you that, that many of them have had great nights of sleep, some might have had sex. Others may have had a, uh, been, uh, seen a good movie that made them laugh and laugh and laugh. Others might have had uh, game nights with their friends and they, they got together and laughed with their friends and enjoyed the friendships together. Uh, others still enjoyed that time, you know, we're heading into where the switch comes, where, where, where winter's giving way to spring. Please, Lord, let it come soon. And they, they enjoyed that warmth and they enjoyed the, the singing of the birds. Some of those people probably have have even fallen in love since they made that video. Is that not the mercy of God? God of the universe, I think you're, you're a child molester, and then God's saying, I'm not going to destroy you just yet. I'm going to hold my wrath. I'm going to let you laugh. I'm going to let you smile. I'm going to let you enjoy friendships. I'm going to let you have your friends. I'm going to let you eat my food. I'm going to let you walk on my planet. Is that not the mercy of God who owes no man anything? The answer is yes, that is his mercy. And that's why you, before you even made a decision to receive Christ, you were walking under the mercy of God because you did not deserve to walk this earth. You did not deserve to live. And yet he said, I'm going to let them live on this earth. I'm going to hold back my wrath. I'm going to hold back the punishment because I've got another plan for this. The Bible says that that there's a greater mercy that he wants to show. It's full mercy. It's a full pardon. But as we've already said, how does he do that and still remain just? Well, that's that's in the next message. But let me just chat with you for a second before before we get out of here this, this morning. What am I trying to accomplish this morning with such a heavy subject? You know, this is not one of those messages. I knew that it was going to be mostly quiet when I was preaching. Because it's not one of those messages that people out there you say, you know, when you say that God created hell for sinners, not many people go, hallelujah, you know. I understand that. I know this is heavy, but so what am I trying to accomplish by talking about these things? Well, a couple of things are obvious. Number one, I'm not trying to grow the church with this message. I mean, I want to see the church grow, but it's this church, this message is not going to do it because nobody's going to walk out of here and, you know, go to your unsaved buddy and say, man, you got to come. We're doing an awesome series on hell. You know, you're just, 
It's just not going to happen. I understand that. But I'm not trying to make you like me or not like me. So why would I bring up such a weighty topic? I bring it up because, first of all, you cannot understand the cross without understanding the weight of the glory of God and the, and the greatness of the offense of belittling His name and then understanding the proper response for that offense. Until you understand that, it's easy to take the cross lightly. You see what I'm saying? When we begin to understand the weight of these things, then the, the cross becomes more than just a, 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 a special moment that take, took place in history. It becomes one of the most powerful, the most powerful event in the history of all of creation. Second, I bring it up because it seems to me, and maybe I'm wrong, but it seems to me that the weight of eternity has escaped most of us. Seems like the horrors of hell and the infinite glory of God has just escaped us. But here, here's what I'm wondering. Where's Psalm 42 for us? Where are those that say, as a deer pants for the flowing stream, so, pants, so my soul pants for you, O God? Where is that man? Where is that woman? Where is the woman who is in Psalm 20, 27 says, One thing have I asked of the Lord that I will seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in His temple. Where is that? Where, where has that gone? Where is that Romans 8 groaning of the heart for the things of God? That groaning over the brokenness of the world? That groaning over our own tendency to, to defame the God we love? Where is that? It seems far from most of us. It seems like for many Christians we've become indifferent. And we're unmoved by the realities of eternity. We're unmoved by the reality of hell. We're unmoved by the reality that our neighbor is on, a, on a, their way to a place of un, inconceivable torment that will last forever. Seems like that's lost on us. And so I wanted us to feel the weight of it. And I don't think I did a very good job of that. We need to feel the weight of eternity because if we don't feel the weight of eternity, then we are not going to be able to fully worship. And worship is why we were created. And if we don't understand the weight of eternity, we'll, we'll take our salvation for granted. We'll forget how great His mercy and grace is towards us. We'll forget how, how horrible our sin was and we'll begin to look down on other people and, and say, well, look at those dirty, rotten sinners and we'll become like the Pharisee in the temple that said, I thank God that I'm not like this tax collector over here. That story always kind of cracked me up because here they are in church, you know, the one guy's over there weeping before God and here's this religious guy and he says, he's praying out loud so everybody can hear, I thank God that I'm not like mm, that guy over there, you know. We'll lose that. We begin to think how lucky God is to have someone as awesome and as talented as we are. We look down on other people because they're sinners and we forget how deeply we deserve judgment. But I want to give you an example. 
Um, I don't know how many sports fans we got here today, but March Madness is about ready to start. Everybody know what March Madness is? Basketball. Basketball. Yeah, there's the go, go sports girl up here. And, and, and March Madness, it's the, the NCAA championship tournament for basketball. And it's, the, in my mind, the greatest sporting event left. Uh, and, I'm not, and the reason I'm saying that is because it's, it's sort of the last venue uh, in sports where David can still beat Goliath. You know, uh, it, it, there's really no other venue where a college you, that you've never even heard of that has like 800 people uh, can upset superstar powers in the basketball world. And here's the thing. Here, here's what I want to say about it. All over this country, there, there are going to be men and, and some women uh, whose teams are going to be playing in that tournament. And, they're, and, and, and they, they have nothing to do with the basketball program other than they watch it. And they're, I'm not kidding, they're going to be nervous. They're going to be nervous. They're, uh, they're going to be nervous in their stomach. They're, they're, it's going to be churning inside there because they want their team to win so badly. And then they're going to, they're going to watch the game. And some of you can relate to this maybe a little more to football, uh, Gina. Uh, but they're going to watch the game. And, uh, and, and they're going to yell at the TV. And one minute, one minute they're going to say, no, no, don't you. Oh, yeah, yeah. yeah. And kids are going to be crying and wives are going to be running away and there's going to be chaos. You know, that's, that's what's coming. And then with victory comes elation and surfing a thousand websites to read the same article over and over and over again about the team's victory. And if their team loses, they're going to be devastated in the morning. And for the, like the next three days, they're going to mope. Every bit of those affections, listen, every bit of those affections, every bit of that emotion, every bit of that passion was given to you by God, for God, not for basketball. I'm not saying you shouldn't watch basketball. It's not what I'm saying. Don't miss the point. I'm saying that the same kind of passion should grip our hearts for things that really matter. So where is the nervousness in our guts when we're on our way to church and we're gathering together with the people of God and we're saying, I wonder what God's going to do today. Where is that churning inside of us that says, oh, Oh, I so want the Spirit of God to move today in a powerful way. I just can hardly stand it. Where is it? Where is the elation over the cross? Has it become too old hat and standardized to us? Have we lost the wonder of it? Where is the devastation over our sins? Where, where is it? We won't have those things without the weight of eternity. Well, where is all those, those things? It's wasted on basketball. It's wasted on football. It's wasted on girls. It's wasted on boys, if a younger, younger generation. It's wasted on the pursuit of material goods. It's wasted on so many things that cry for attention. And none of those things are sinful. Don't misunderstand me. And I'm not saying that you shouldn't. I'm not saying that you shouldn't. I'm saying that that if you're that passionate over that, we should be that much more passionate over him. Yeah. I mean, surely you won't try to convince me 
that we are not worthy of hell. I'm here to tell you I am. That's what I earned. I'm worthy of that. But, I love, there's so many verses in the Bible where it says, but God. Thank God for his second response. Thank God that he didn't just stop at the first response and he would have been absolutely justified in saying, this is now I'm creating hell. This is where they're going. That's on them. They made their choice. I washed my hands and he would have, it would have been right and just for him to do so. But thank God that he's not just a God of justice, but he's also a God of mercy. He's a God of grace. He's a God of love. He's a God of patience. And so he said, I'm not going to stop with that one response, but, it, but that has to be there if I'm going to be a just God. However, in my love and my compassion, I'm going to offer a second response to the sin of mankind. And God's second response to our sin and to our rebellion is the wrath-absorbing cross of Christ. And I can't wait to get into that next time as we talk about God's second response. And as we, as, we, as we go through this series leading up to Easter, I pray that Easter will become that much more powerful in your life this year. Would you bow your head with me? Father, I just ask for your help today. Lord, I, I understand the reality is we can't just decide to love you like this.